0: Is an Odyssey original. This is KX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: I'm Charles Feldman. A massive heat wave starting to bear down in California. Temperatures will be scorching in many parts well over 100 degrees. With the heat, there's a flex alert, of course, asking people to conserve electricity so the power grid doesn't get strained. But why are we still dealing with a strained power grid? Perhaps. The solution is nuclear we will go in depth. A picture can say nothing or it can say a thousand words. The feds have a picture of what they say are classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. It could prove obstruction on the part of former President Trump. And revamped COVID vaccines could be made available next week. The FDA just approved versions that are supposed to fight Omicron.
0: Major U.S. airlines have told the government they'll provide meals if you're delayed and hotel rooms if you're stranded. Are they actually going to follow through? New survey shows young people are in tune with what's going on in the news, but they'd rather the news focus on different things. A jellyfish could hold the clues to anti-aging secrets, and Amazon will find out very soon if its investment in Lord of the Rings is going to pay off.
1: We start with heat, electric grids, and nuclear power. Michael Schellenberger is founder and president of Environmental Progress. He's also an author and former California governor candidate. Thanks for being with us. I wonder, Thank and I'm haven't. sure that there are some people who wonder, if we would be having these what seem to be endless flex alerts every time the thermometer you know, gets close to 95 or 100, if we would have gone down a different path in the past few decades with nuclear power, nuclear power plants. What do you think?
2: We absolutely would not have done. I mean, we had a plan in the 60s in California to significantly expand nuclear power along the coasts. There's also a plan to build a nuclear power plant inland, which would have been similar to the plant that exists in Arizona, which actually recycles Phoenix's wastewater and turns it into clean drinking water. And nuclear provides power 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, There is some concern in parts of Europe where you have warmer temperatures making river water warmer than uh, usual uh, because of climate change. And that has been a concern. But California would be getting its water from the oceans. And so that would not be a problem. So, yeah, I mean, if we were more like France and 70 percent, 80 percent nuclear rather than just 9 percent nuclear, we would not be having blackouts every year around this time.
0: Yeah, you anticipated my next question, how many are left. So 9% nuclear, and what the legislature now is considering keeping this state's last plant open past its uh, closure date, which was going to be just a few years away.
2: That's right. So we had, until 2013, we had two nuclear plants, one called San Onofre in Southern California, and then our last nuclear plant is Diablo Canyon on the Central Coast, each of those plants provided 9% of our total electricity. So the last one remains Diablo Canyon. Diablo is a particularly significant plant historically. It's a plant that the Sierra Club advocated for building in the 1960s. It then led to a split within the club between pro-nuclear and anti-nuclear people. But the plant itself, you know, is very controversial. You know, there's it's this is California, so there's just earthquake faults everywhere. There's an earthquake fault running under my house. There's earthquake faults running under most of California. So they 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 retrofitted that plant. It's a very safe plant. It consistently gets into the top twenty percent of best performing plants according to the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Extraordinary safety record, very, very good record. And the interesting thing about it is that it's two reactors but it had room for six reactors. And the idea originally was that you would use some of those reactors to desalinate water. So this, you know, drought we live in, of course it's, it's, you know, a consequence of of uh, some combination of natural cycles and climate change. We've always had droughts in California, but we're not doomed to water scarcity. Uh, People don't realize it, but, you know, the Israelis have pioneered the use of desalination technology to convert ocean water into fresh drinking water. So that's one of the other purposes that nuclear can fulfill.
1: Michael, let me ask you something. I mean, you consider yourself, am I correct, an environmentalist?
2: Been an environmentalist my whole life. <laughs> okay. Absolutely.
1: So, so there are some people listening who might think that that's kind of a paradox, that you are an environmentalist, yet you're saying— that we would be better off in terms of our power situation, especially when it gets hot, if we had more, not less, nuclear power?
2: It does seem like a paradox, and certainly it was for me. I mean, I grew up a child of the 70s. Uh, Three Mile Island happened when I was uh, eight years old. That was 1979. Chernobyl happened when I was 15, 1986. Uh, These were very scary disasters. I believed, like many people still think, that if you have a nuclear power plant accident, it's the same thing as a bomb going off. I thought that nuclear power plants polluted the environment, that they emitted green liquid waste because I got my information from The Simpsons, as many people do. But I changed my mind in part because I was an advocate for renewables, and we kept having opposition to big solar farms in the mojave by conservationists who were rightly concerned about the impact of these solar farms on our endangered california desert tortoise you know it requires 300 times more land to get the same amount of electricity from a solar plant as from a nuclear plant and that's only for part of the year really 30 or 35 percent of the year because obviously the sun doesn't shine all the time the weather's not always permitting So I took a second look at nuclear. I was shocked by what I learned, including the fact that it was viewed in the 60s correctly, in my view, as the most environmentally sound technology. Produces a huge amount of energy in a very small amount of land. It does not produce any air or water pollution. It does produce nuclear waste, but it's in very tiny quantities. And the waste is basically just the the used metal fuel rods, which is a solid waste that's encased in steel and concrete. As an environmentalist, it's everything that you should want from a waste byproduct because it's contained at the site of production, never goes into the environment, never becomes pollution.
0: All right, Michael Schellenberger, founder, president of Environmental Progress. Michael, thanks.
1: Right now, though, obstruction of justice is emerging. As a key focus in the Justice Department's investigation of classified government documents, the FBI seized at Mar-a-Lago connected to former President Trump. A court filing says classified documents were stashed in Mr. Trump's office. The former president posted on Truth Social, saying the FBI, in his words, haphazardly threw documents all over the floor and then started taking pictures. He said, luckily... He declassified them. With us is Kevin O'Brien, white-collar trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Well, let's uh, uh, sort of unpack this bit by bit. So Mr. Trump is upset because the pictures that were released now to the press show these documents clearly labeled top secret, classified, things like that, uh, you know, thrown about as they were being photographed for evidence. Does he have a case?
3: I don't think so. The the point of the photograph was to show how obvious it was that the documents were indeed highly sensitive and uh, classified at the highest level and therefore shouldn't have been out of the uh, confines of the National Archives in Washington. Uh, And that's what the photos appear to show. Um, The testimony or the statement in the government's submission and the affidavit they provided earlier says that they found a lot of this material not in the locked uh, storage area where the Trump people said the stuff was stored, but actually in Trump's office, even on his desk, which is another breach of security and uh, one mentioned in the government submission last night.
0: Yeah. So if it was concealed or removed or they said, yeah, we looked for stuff and it's all good. We didn't find anything. What does that lead us to?
3: Well, the significance of that is it shows intent to mislead the government. Uh, The the Justice Department and and the other folks involved in this archive search said, you're not supposed to have this stuff, Mr. Trump. You've got to give it back. And he said, "Okay, I'll send back what I have. And he sent back 15 or so boxes. But it turns out he didn't send back all of it. Far from it. And when they issued a subpoena, they got more materials. And when they went on the site and took photographs, they realized all the stuff that had been removed still wasn't in the, again, the storage area that the Trump folks pointed to. And when they finally executed the search, the third stage of this investigation, uh, a few weeks ago, um, they actually found material outside the storage room in his office and on his desk, so, all uh, of which is a breach of the protocols for confidential and highly sensitive information.
1: So here's what I'm curious about, Kevin. If I'm going to use my my, my colleague as an example, if if they found all this stuff in in Mike Simpson's house, I uh, you know, and it was clearly labeled top secret, classified, and it was scattered all over the place. And I his didn't living. know I had it. You know, you had good good answer. Uh, Would he be sitting here now?
3: (laughs) Well, if he'd been a former government employee who once had a security clearance to look at the material and then didn't give it back, he wouldn't be sitting there with you. He'd probably be under indictment, which is how these cases are often handled. Uh, But the Justice Department is proceeding very deliberately here, and we'll just have to see what happens next. There's a hearing tomorrow on a side issue in the case which is whether or not a special master should be appointed
0: which the Trump team could have asked for like months ago as the back and forth was happening.
3: Right. Well, the justice department sort of got the jump on them. They said, "Look, we've already reviewed all the stuff for privilege. Here's our log. Uh there wasn't much, but we've taken care of the issue. There's no need to appoint." All right. A special
0: master. Kevin O'Brien, white-collar trial lawyer, former federal prosecutor. That'd be a great way to open the show, wouldn't it? All like, right. yeah. Hey, I'm Charles Feldman and uh Mike's under
1: indictment, so you won't be joining us today. And for the record, you do not have any top-secret documents, No, please right? do not come to my house. Okay. Coming up, the big airlines in the usa they're going to feed and house passengers if flights are delayed or canceled. Well, that's going to be a big task, let me tell you.
0: Why do I think it's like a taco and then like a blanket for the airport seats? Like, here's your voucher and your housing.
1: Yeah, or they'll say, we'll put you up at a hotel in a city that we can't get you Ride to. Ride the escalators, I don't know. Oh, and also the new Lord of the Rings TV series drops tomorrow. Will the massive investment from Amazon be well worth it? We have a hotel room for you in Duluth. Yeah, but we can't get you there. We can't get you there.
0: Um, Right now, though, the FDA has approved Pfizer and Moderna's revised COVID vaccines, the ones that target Omicron. So we know how this works now. CDC's got to sign off. With us is Dr. Suman Radhakrishna, director of infectious disease with Dignity Health California Hospital in L.A., Doctor, thanks for being here. Let's address the problem we've run into with every successive booster that we've gotten. The number of people who get them is getting lower. Do you worry that it's going to happen again with this shot? Now that we're on to you know number four or like five for some people.
4: First of all, thank you for having me. Yes, we do uh, worry that uh, people are kind of tired of COVID and uh, feel like. Uh, this is a much um, a milder version of the original COVID that is running around, and why bother? Um, the bottom line is uh, getting the booster will reduce your risk of getting infected. It also reduces the risk of long COVID because if there was no COVID, then there is no long COVID.
1: So I know the CDC will end up tomorrow, I believe it is, giving the recommendations on who should get what. But from your point of view as a doctor, What do you think it should be? Uh, Who should be getting this latest booster?
4: Well, almost anybody who's susceptible to getting COVID should consider getting the vaccine, especially people who are at risk of getting severe disease, people who have underlying medical conditions, people who are very obese, um, people who um, have lung issues. These are individuals who should go and get it. Uh, sooner than later. Anyone who's immunocompromised should also consider this. Essentially what this is, is a combination of the original COVID vaccine and um, the mRNA that has been tweaked to produce antibodies against the Omicron BA4 and BA5 variants. So what is prevailing now should be controlled with this vaccine.
0: Everybody is now on like a different number of which shot they've had. So without going into that and getting confusing, how far out from whatever your last one was do you need to be to get this one?
4: The FDA's um, emergency use authorization recommends that it be two months after your last one. If you take it sooner, it may not be as effective, but two months or more would be more effective.
1: So is it time... Do you think for the government to have a very clear message to people that this really is shaping up to be kind of like the routine with flu shots, that roughly every year we're probably going to have to update it so that people don't get annoyed?
4: Well, I think the writing's already on the wall. First, in uh, early 2020, we said if everybody shuts down and everybody stays home, then we can get over this. And I have been guilty of saying that as well. And we never did. And then we got variants and we got more variants and we got wave after wave after wave. This is evolving. This is still continuing to be with us. And as long as it's going to be with us, I think everybody understands that getting the shots is a good idea. It's just like influenza. You are never going to get rid of influenza, so we go get flu shots every year. Same way, COVID is going to be around, and as long as it's around, we have to take care of ourselves.
0: Is this a like run out and get it as soon as it's available thing, or do you foresee people saying, "Well, I'll wait like till we get into colder weather, then I'll do it then"?
4: Remember, after every vaccination, there is that um, that phase when your body produces the antibodies. So if you get the shot today, you're not protected today. It's going to be at least two weeks from now. And some people may be a little bit longer than that. And it continues to build up over time. Schools are starting. Colleges are starting. People are starting to go back in person. And um, a lot of mask wearing has also kind of, you know, everyone's getting mask fatigue. And that is also dropping. And, um, and this would be one of the time when people are congregating and there's one person who's infected. And if your um, your antibody titer is low, everybody gets infected. And so I would suggest that around September um, and early October, when we go in to get our flu shots, it's a good time to get it. The advantage is you can get both the shots at the same time. There's no contraindication that says do this first and then wait for several weeks and get the other one.
0: All right, Dr. Suman Radhakrishna, Director of Infectious Disease, Dignity Health, California Hospital in L.A.
1: This is KX In-Depth with Mike Simpson.
0: I'm Charles Feldman. The big airlines have told the Transportation Department they're going to feed customers delayed by three hours and provide hotel rooms for people who get stranded if things happen under the airline's
1: control. Many airlines have previously offered vouchers or hotel rooms for delays they caused, but did not spell out commitments and customer service plans. The government has been priding the airlines to help customers, especially since So many flights have been canceled over the past several months, this due to things like staffing shortages. So with us now is uh, Brett Snyder, author of the Cranky Flyer blog and and director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Brett, thanks for coming back. So, as I said, uh, this is sort of something that airlines did do, did they not? So what's different now? Yeah, they did do this, Uh, and it actually is spelled out in
5: most of their contracts of carriage. So, uh, you know, (laughs) there's not a
1: lot more going on here than what they already should be doing. Well, wait a minute. So, are are we being played then? Because (laughs) how nice
0: we're being. Yeah, Yeah. because
1: because the government is you know they're they're making this big deal about the airlines are now committed to doing this. So it sounds like like we're being taken for fools. Uh,
5: It it kind of feels that way. I, I think you know. The government always likes to be able to say that it's it's had a big win and um, they can talk about it this way. There might be some improvements with this uh, over the existing policies, Uh, and there is this new interactive dashboard that the DOT is going to make available so people can easily compare policies. So there might be some improvements, but it's certainly not this uh, watershed moment
0: here. Am I still going to have to like chase them down and grab them and shake them and say, give me the hotel, or is it going to be easier for me?
5: That is the real question that matters here, right? Um, you know, when, when you look at like, I went and pulled up United's contract to carriage, for example. And so they say that if there's a delay that exceeds four hours, uh, you know, they will offer lodging um, and they're not necessarily liable to reimburse if, if they don't offer it. Uh, Now, in their customer service plan, it does say that they can reimburse there, but it's only up to a certain amount. And what the reimbursement process will be like, how long it'll take, I really don't know.
1: Why is it such a a, a difficult thing in this country? And it's not so difficult, it seems to me, because I've had this happen with overseas carriers. I mean, I remember being on a flight once uh, and I'll say it, it was British Airways from here to, to uh, London, and uh, the plane had some technical dis- difficulties. We were stuck in Texas overnight. Uh, but they coughed up like 800 bucks for the delay, in addition to putting everybody on the plane up and providing you know food service for, the, for dinner and for breakfast. But it was no great fuss. Well, that's that's
5: actually pretty rare for people that have dealt with the European carriers. Uh, there is a rule in Europe uh, that requires that they compensate you for delays, cancellations, and all that, uh, and it even applies to U.S. airlines if you're going to Europe or, or you know traveling between the US and Europe. And uh, so often, though, they will play games and say, Oh, we don't actually owe you that we don't have to do it. So if they actually offered it up front, that's great. But a cottage industry has uh, has grown up in Europe of people who try to help you get compensation that you're owed over there because the airlines like to play games so much. Yeah,
0: I've seen these they take like, you know, we'll give you your 70% of whatever fee and we'll, we'll keep like 30 of it, but we'll do the work for you.
5: Right, right. Exactly right. And and they know how to pursue it. And they just keep going and going and going. So the the real question here with this announcement from DOT is what will they do to enforce this? That's what everyone really should be wondering at this point. Uh, You know, this says, okay, United says it will do this. What happens if United doesn't do this? Will they get fined? Um, Will DOT really support travelers on this and follow through? Or will they hem and haw and negotiate a reduction in the fine and, you know, everyone forgets about it?
0: Here's one question I have is just why do they play so many games with us or just seem like they don't care sometimes? Case in point, I'm stranded in Boston, I don't know, like a month ago or something. And I got it out of the agent because she called and she was great. And and she called somebody. She goes, what is like 228 looking like? No, no go. Okay." And then she looks at me. She goes, get another flight. But they waited another like four or five hours. And then when the flight, quote unquote, was supposed to board the original flight, and then they canceled it. So everyone else was just waiting all day. And then they're like, oh, sorry. Stay the night.
5: Yeah, you know, they really what they want to do is they want that plane to go. And so they often will wait until the last minute if they think there's a chance that, that they can actually get it in the air. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know exactly when you make that call, it may not look good, but you may still have a chance. If you cancel it, there's no real coming back from that. So um, sometimes that's how they do it. And it, it's really hard to figure out the right way to regulate that. Uh, you know, would would you rather have your flight canceled earlier, even if there's a chance that it goes, every person might have a different opinion on that. So it, it becomes a whole game, but it shouldn't be hard to get a hotel room or a meal voucher if you're going to be delayed for too long. Uh, And, you know, that's one of the things DOT is fed up with here, even though it's already something that most airlines offer.
1: Why do I get the feeling, though, that as part of their business plan, airlines just look at passengers as an annoyance?
5: (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, they're... FedEx loves their passengers.
0: <laughs> they don't talk bad. <laughs> Fred Snyder, author of the Cranky Flyer blog, director of the Cranky Concierge Travel Service.
1: No, no don't you get that feeling? It's like, it's like they don't really want to deal with you. They just kind of have to because you're there. You want another bag of peanuts? <laughs> the perception of younger people is that they are too consumed with themselves and their phones and video games to pay attention to what's going on in the world. But a new survey from the Associated Press and the American Press Institute finds nearly 80% of people between 16 and 40 years old follow news daily. Only about 32% say they enjoy it, though. It was down
0: from 53%. Similar study seven years ago. Uh, Mark Beal is a professor at the Rutgers School of Communication, Information. Current research focuses on Gen Z and media consumption. Mark, thanks for being here. So uh, how do you read this? And also, where are they getting the news from?
6: Yeah, it's not surprising to me when they, you know, the report comes out that nearly 79% of, uh, as they say, young Americans are getting their news daily. Not surprising. They consume content. um, But as you said, they're consuming on different channels. I talk about the big three a lot, right? YouTube, Instagram, TikTok. um, Those are the big three, at least for Generation Z, those born starting in 1997. So they're going to non-traditional channels. You know, an old Gen Xer like me, right? I read two, three, four newspapers in the morning. I'd listen to the radio on the commute to work. And then at night, I'd catch six o'clock, seven o'clock, 11 o'clock news. They're not consuming it in that way. But they are consuming news, information, and a whole wide variety of content through, you know, for lack of a better word, new and emerging channels.
1: Interesting word you use, content. Uh, what is their definition of news?
6: That Great question. So in my survey, when I asked them about I say news and information, you know, they'll come back and I see that the report has this similar, you know, their focus is on things like entertainment, pop culture, uh, you know, food, fitness, fashion, you know, less probably about hardcore, you know, Wall Street news or maybe political news. So. You raise a good point there. When I ask about news and information, what is it you're seeking, whether it's on YouTube or another channel? It probably falls more into that space. And I see the report kind of reports came out with that as well. Again, entertainment news, pop culture news, sports, fitness, food, fashion news.
0: How far into some of the hard news stories do they actually go too? Because like Instagram, if you're getting the news on Instagram, Washington Post does this all the time. They post a picture, then they text part of the like um, headline. That'll be two slides. And then you can click through on the link and read it. But other than that, like, are you just getting a poll quote and that's about it?
6: Hey, great. It's a great question. Uh, there's a New York Times story that was written. I believe it was last summer. It might've been the summer before, but I always use it in my my presentations when I talk about this topic. And it was written by a college intern who interned for the New York Times It's summer. And as he said, you know, we do consume news. We just consume it differently. And to your point, he said, typically we do is we look at headlines. If it interests us, we'll click, we'll read more, we'll research more. Right. But headlines, uh, images, and other things that might engage them could then lead to clicking through and then, again, reading, researching more. But I think it's more of those things that are catching their eye and potentially engaging them and, and having them explore more into what the news is or the information is.
1: So I guess instead of, of talking in terms of what it is they are consuming and, and what, uh, maybe a better question to to raise is how informed actually is this group uh, of news consumers about the world? And and I don't mean just the show business world sure. or the recording industry world, but the world in which they live.
6: Yeah, I think two points. One, in in my most recent survey of you know, 60% of Gen Zers said, you know, the credibility of the source uh, is really important to me. So it's not just information and news that I'm just gathering from any any outlet, but, you know, the The credibility, the and and the the source is really important. And then the second thing, to your point, is you know I do call them the purpose generation. I don't think I'm the only one that calls Gen Z the purpose generation. So they're really focused on you know who is doing what, companies, individuals are doing good in society, contributing to a better planet, contributing to a better world. So I know they're lasered in on those kinds of things as well, right? Um, Things that are contributing to a better world, a better planet, a better society is 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 one of those one of those priorities one of those uh, news topics they're focused on the other one is you know mental health mental health is a top top priority for them it's also a top area of focus so uh mental health is another topic that again would not fall into the genre of uh, pop culture entertainment but that's something that they they've got an eye out for and they're always seeking information around mental health
0: Well, does that bring us to the you know i don't like what i see on the news kind of part of the survey is that about finding a different balance like even among those who want the hard news like put some good stuff in there it can't be doom and gloom all the time can it or is this like it does. a box versus yeah, I think cnn is a good word there. they don't like the fighting.
6: I, I, one of the one of the things i was going to bring up too just since we're, we're you know on radio here They love audio content and they love, to your point, the balance of like on podcasts. Uh, Gen Z loves podcasts. Why? Because they can download it and listen anytime, anywhere they want. But they love this genre, all the genres from business news to politics, to comedy, to entertainment. So I think the word balance is a good one as far as what they're they're seeking their news and information.
1: And so what conclusions should media companies, big media companies take from all this? (laughs)
6: Well, it's funny, you mentioned the Washington Post earlier. And another thing I always bring up, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but you know, separate from the the print edition or the online edition, you know, when you talk about Washington Post with Gen Z, they'll say, yeah, I love Dave on TikTok, right? So so I think media companies, as you guys know better than I, they are emerging, they are evolving, because they know this next generation of consumers will become eventually maybe the primary consumer for them. And so I think it's the idea of, yeah, maybe they're not consuming news and information in the content that we've been delivering it for years, but they are consuming it. So let's figure out how do we get it to them where they want to receive it and and kind of in the form they want to receive it. So whether you like Dave on TikTok or not for the Washington Post, it's the point is they actually do know the Washington Post, but they know it through that version, right? The the news and information he's putting out on on their TikTok channel.
0: Mark Beal, professor at the Rutgers School of Communication and Information. I saw an interesting thread on uh, Twitter the other day saying, you know, some we'll Google like uh, where to go to brunch. Mm. We'll Google it, right? Yeah. But some people will go on TikTok and say brunch or rooftops and look in their city so they can get a video of like the aesthetic, and that's how they choose where to go. Well, which would never yeah. occur to me.
7: Yeah, I'm mean, a typical person. Not a,
0: <laughs> as an old person. It's not a bad idea? To do that's that. a great idea. Kudos yeah. to them for that. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman.
1: Jellyfish, they're among the strangest sea creatures out there. They have no skeleton, no brain. Why do I think we just insulted like every jellyfish? No brain. <laughs> it It'll sounds, rise
0: up against us Yeah, now. It sounds
1: terrible. They have no brain. Uh, and it hurts when they sting you.
0: Yeah, there's a certain type of jellyfish. It's got a nickname, the immortal jellyfish. It has the ability to make itself younger again, rejuvenates, goes back to like a younger state of existence, Uh, and the goal is to find out how this happens and, you know, if we can find a way to slow aging. Maria Pascual-Torner is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oviedo in Spain. She and the colleagues studied this sea creature. Uh, Maria, thanks for joining us. So lots of jellyfish can kind of do this but this one is special.
8: The jellyfish that we study is Turritopsis dorni. The rejuvenation was discovered like at the 80s. So what we did is to sequence the, the genome, so the whole genome. And with that, we can. it's like to read the book, uh, like the instructions book of this jellyfish. That, that's the difference. And this jellyfish, what, what it does is that uh, a normal jellyfish, after the sexual reproduction, would just age and die. But this jellyfish, what it does is that it's changed, it transforms the whole body into the polyp, which is uh, an earlier stage than the jellyfish. That's what we say that uh, rejuvenates.
1: So if, if I get this, so what you're saying is that they they have sex, but they don't die. They actually get younger and keep on going.
8: Yeah, uh, yeah. Instead of dying, they just transform themselves to the polyp, which is a um, yeah younger stage, like the one that it comes from the sexual reproduction.
0: And how long can they keep doing this, conceivably, or how long do we know that they can do this? How many times?
8: Yeah, it's very hard to know that. <laughs> Uh, in the lab and in the sea, because they are so, so small, they just measure like uh, four millimeters. So in the sea, it's really hard to see if they do this rejuvenation. So we cannot say, but for us, the really important thing is that it's in this process of rejuvenation, because in this process, um, cells that have specific functions they can de-differentiate, so they can go back and um, reset the clock and change um, and become like stem cells. These cells can um, transform to any cell in the in the body.
1: Yeah, and does this process, as far as you know? go on endlessly i mean is there an end to this or some people
0: call it the immortal jellyfish yeah
1: yeah does it go on for for as far as we know forever unless i don't know somebody crushes the jellyfish (laughs) or something
8: as i said as i said before uh it's it's very hard to to check that Ah, but the the title of immortal is because it rejuvenates instead of die dying rejuvenate
1: uh, i I mean it's great for the jellyfish obviously they have a very good <laughs> sex life because it keeps going on and on and on and on what w- what's the application if any do you think for people
8: uh, so what we found in the study are candidates so we second the, the the genome and then we compare uh some genes that are associated with aging to uh from these species and then another one that is rubra that is uh a relative of telomerase dorni, but it cannot rejuvenate. Um, and then, so we found some changes inside the, some genes that are associated with um, hallmarks of aging. So, what what this study um, gives to, to science is some candidates to keep exploring. So it's not just it's not that we found uh, the
0: the fountain of youth. Like the,
8: <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we just um, found new ideas to keep exploring and especially uh, to keep researching in, in research uh, associated with, uh, with aging uh, and aging associated disease like cancer, like um, neurodegenerative uh, disease.
0: So yeah, we so are it's almost. It's just the
8: beginning. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So 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 we're further down the road in understanding aging because of this by watching how these guys can reverse it, but it doesn't mean we can stop it ourselves.
8: Uh, yeah. Th- this this would be going too fast, <laughs> <laughs> and and this sometimes is is uh, dangerous to do that. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's a, it's a really important step because we could start reading this genome. And and these extraordinary jellyfish uh, give us clues about where we can uh, start, like looking to try to find some new knowledge about the aging um, disease. For our laboratory, what is really important is to uh, to do research about the aging disease, not about trying to find some kind of. Formula for immortality, you
0: know? Yeah, or like a really good skin cream. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking to us.
8: Okay, thank you to you.
0: Maria Pascual Tornare, postdoctoral researcher, University of Oviedo in
1: Spain. Still feel feel badly that we said jellyfish have no brains. They didn't know. They know. But they must be doing something, right? They live for like <laughs> ever, yeah, right? They're, so they're having a heck know. of a time out there, just floating around. Yeah. So you Not don't a have, care in the world. No, you don't have you don't have to be smart to live forever. Ask a jellyfish. Ignorance is bliss. Well, if you were waiting, it's over. You can leave the the shire. And show ends. (laughs) No, Amazon's Lord of the Rings prequel is finally coming out tomorrow. The Rings of Power takes place thousands of years before both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. It'll detail the rise uh, and how the rings were made, among other things.
0: Now, the business side, Amazon spent $465 million on the first season, which is, like, extraordinary because it's a TV show. Uh, What if it flops? Adam Vary, senior entertainment writer for Variety, covers the business of genre storytelling, fandom across the movies, TV, and streaming platforms. Adam, um, do we know if this thing is good?
7: We do. And it is Um, uh, the reviews. Most of the reviews came out today and uh, they are, I would say, mostly quite positive. Um, I have personally seen the first two episodes and I very much enjoyed it. Uh, If you are a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien and you loved the Lord of the Rings movies, this is going to really hit that sweet spot. Did he have anything to do with this? Peter Jackson? No, he did not. Uh, In fact, he, you know, he said that he had sort of initially been approached by Amazon way back when they were still kind of figuring out the show, and then they never really followed up with him. So no, he's going to be watching (laughs) just as a fan.
0: My people will call your people. Um, Yeah. Did you see it on the big screen? Because they did some of these Or, or does it work in a living room?
7: Uh I have not, I did see it because I'm a fancy journalist. I did see it on <laughs> at, at a at a uh at a, an advanced screening in a screening room. So it's not exactly how a person will be in most people will be experiencing it, although they are doing, they did do, I think, uh, you know, a special fan screening um either yesterday or or today, in fact. Um uh, but yeah, most people are going to see it on their TVs, and I think it plays perfectly well on TVs. Mo- you know, most people now have seen the Lord of the Rings movies on their TVs, and they're still as popular as ever. So I think I think it's going to work there.
1: Okay, this is way too upbeat for me. <laughs> what 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 are, <laughs> what are what are what are are there is there anything that really you know the fans of Lord of the Rings are not going to like about this? There must be something. Oh sure, I mean you know. There's, Tell us what it, it is. <laughs> anything,
7: anything that uh you know, anytime, any anyone tries to step into the sort of hallowed, sacred grounds of a beloved, you know, franchise like the Lord of the Rings, they're they're invariably going to step in a in a patch of something that's going to piss somebody off. Hmm. So,
1: um, I mean, they're like the Hobbits, is... not tall enough or not short enough or what <laughs> well, they're no there are no hobbits uh oh. they're
7: harfoots they're uh instead of hobbits who live in one er- uh one part of middle earth they are a uh, sort of nomadic creatures called harfoots who are sort of proto hobbits i would say the thing that i th- most you know major tolkien fans are going to not you know are, are going to maybe rub them a little bit the wrong way is you know the the story that this is telling is uh the second age of middle earth which uh if you look in the sort of appendices of the lord of the rings is is detailed and almost like it's a history book like a like sort of just this happened and then this happened and this happened and it happened on this date and this date and that kind of thing um these events are supposed to take place over um decades if not hundreds of years if not thousands of years and the show is compressing a lot of these events into all of them happening essentially roughly around the same time. So if you're a real stickler for accuracy.
0: <laughs> You've read your appendices.
1: If you read your appendices, that might drive you the wrong way. There's also, I mean, so wait, well, let, let me get this straight. So the show, yeah. so what it's doing is it's the show is taking something that's not real and compressing it into a time frame oh, that's Jared. not real.
7: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ah, okay, <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean,
7: it's like not to. Like, be mad like, at this, you, Charles. Yeah, not to bring things down, but the other th- big innovation that they're doing that I think is fantastic uh, is that this is a far more racially diverse cast than uh we saw in the peter jackson films there are uh you know people of color who are elves and dwarves and harfoots and humans and uh uh, a certain very ugly racist corner of the internet is very angry about that but i think it works beautifully well on the show.
0: is it inevitably going to get this versus game of thrones comparisons or is game of thrones the prequel already doing so well that like it's winning
7: Oh, you know, it's it's impossible to not pit those shows against each other just because of the timing as well as the subject matter. But they are truly, they really almost could not be more different other than the fact that they're fantasy epics. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the the Rings of Power is a very family-friendly show. There's violence, but it's sort of fantasy violence. And it's of a kin of what were in the movies uh, that Peter Jackson did. Whereas House of the Dragon is a hard like Hard R or Hard TVMA uh show with like just really bloody violence and nudity and sex and just a very much more adult show. So you're going to get a very different kind of experience out of each show and and I think personally there is room for both although Uh, I I do understand why there is a lot of temptation to pit them against each other.
1: Well, here's another downer question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) To end the show, something sad. Well, it is a business, and we mentioned that Amazon spent, like, what, 465 I think we said, million bucks on the first season. Are they going to make their money?
7: Uh, You know, that is uh, the question of the streaming era. How do any of these things make any money at all? Um, You know, Amazon (laughs) uh, is, you know, you watch this if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, which, Gets you free shipping on toothbrushes. So <laughs> I guess um, from Amazon's Two-day perspective... shipping and Lord of the Rings. And go. Lord of the Rings. So I guess from Amazon's perspective, it's just how many more people sign up for Prime and does that keep them subscribed to Prime? And that's what their sort of most important metric. But you're not, you know, HBO has been releasing uh, proprietary uh, viewership numbers uh, on House of the Dragon, which we just have to take their word for. And according to HBO, it's a, it's their you know, biggest series premiere ever. Um, you're not, you know, Amazon has made clear to people like me that they're not planning on doing the same. So we really will not know in any real material way, how well the show is going other than just vibes, you know, is it, <laughs> are, are, you know, are we, are we, are people vibing with it or not? Yeah. Um, you know, I think if it's dominating the conversation and I, having seen it, I think it will. I think it's a really engrossing so, show. But but we won't know how engrossing. We will not know how many people are watching it. Unless, so so to a, wrap it up, it's course.
1: a it's it's a, a make believe show compressed in a make believe time using make believe metrics to, to determine whether it's successful or not.
7: That is about right. Yeah. Okay. Fantasy.
1: Adam
0: Ferry, <laughs> senior entertainment writer for Variety. Adam, thanks. More in depth tomorrow.